not sure. Has, you, has everybody found Haggai? Haggai chapter 2? Are we all good? Okay. We're continuing this morning in, again, this little-known and often not read book of the Old Testament, Haggai. And what we're focusing on in these uh, brief weeks are the four messages that the Lord gives to his people through Haggai. And as you might remember, I kind of set the context for us last week. The Lord spoke through Haggai to Jewish exiles after the fall of the nation of Israel, after it had split due to civil war, and then after it had fallen to two different world empires, they are called back. And Haggai is speaking to exiles who have come back to their homeland. And he speaks, in fact, after an initial promising return to Jerusalem, after uh, the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple that that had been destroyed previously. But Haggai speaks after this initial promising start 15 years later, because after everything starts so well, 15 years go by with no progress. And as we discussed last Sunday, Haggai's first words, or the Lord's first words through Haggai, we might say, were a wake-up call. It was an admonition to the people to see the fruitlessness of their lives apart from God. The centerpiece of that wake-up call was an understanding that people were challenged to see their lives not primarily, not solely as the product of their choices, but instead to have this shift as seeing their choices coming out of their understanding of God's call, God's leading upon their lives. Well, since that first message, as we're going to get back to the text in a moment, a month has gone by, and the people have renewed the building project. In those first 30 days, most likely they had dealt solely with the rubble, the broken pieces left over from the destruction of the temple decades earlier. And together, they cleared away those ruins by hand, without the luxury of bulldozers or cranes. We can imagine, can't we? It was long, monotonous, and probably a depressing experience. Cleanup work is never fun. It has a tendency to make the hours drag on and the days seem longer. It's also important to note, though, that in these first 30 days, the Israelites had some time off due to a couple of public holidays. Haggai is great because he gives us a timeline. And and from the timeline that we're given throughout each of his messages, from the timeline that Haggai gives us, we know that everyone got back to work in the seventh month of that year. And being the seventh month, we can put together from the rest of Scripture that that first day of the month on the seventh month was set apart as being the Feast of Trumpets. And so there was that particular month was the first day was the start of a couple of holidays in succession. And the first was the Feast of Trumpets. And then on the 10th day, it was the celebration of the Day of Atonement. And then on the 15th day, the Feast of Booths. So it was one of those situations where a couple of holidays came back to back. And so the people had this opportunity to remember their story. And, and even in between those days, just normal course of life, the people would have had their normal Sabbath, Sabbath rest. So in these first 30 days, they're clearing away the rubble. But there's also these spaces where productivity would have slowed down and they would have had this just beautiful gift of time. Time to reflect on the temple rebuilding project that was instigated by Haggai's first prophecy. Now, we might think that the celebration of a couple of holidays would have been a good thing. It would have led to increased enthusiasm about what they were doing. It would have led to the building of some momentum in terms of the the temple project. But that's not what happens. Instead, the observance of a few of the key religious festivals for Israel has the opposite effect. 30 days in, after Haggai's first message, and the work project once again grinds to a halt. 
Why? What happened? Let's listen and find out. From Haggai chapter 2, starting with verse 1. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (laughs) I have always disliked the expression, perception is reality. This expression for me is one of those sayings that can quickly become a cop-out, a way of pigeonholing a situation and therefore removing any sense of personal responsibility. That's the way I see it, therefore that's how it is. And I don't think I have to tell you in my line of work being a pastor When people think perception is reality, it's a real pain in the neck. And for me, it's not just a personal thing because I encounter that expression a lot in my vocation. I also find, just when I stop and think about it, that expression, perception is reality, seems to me to fly in the face of another popular saying that we have. Never judge a book by its cover. So which is it? to again play two contradictory expressions off of each other, is beauty in the eye of the beholder? Or is what you see not always what you get? Well, for the Israelites who have returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, things for them don't look good. This perception was especially true, if you picked it up, for the elders in the community. Many of the older generation who were alive to see the temple built by Solomon before it was subsequently destroyed could remember what the original structure was like. I mean, how could they forget? How could they forget all the gold and the silver, the jewels and the other treasures that adorned the first temple? But those days are long gone. The land they had returned to was barren. The times that they were living in now were times of drought and diminished resources. Yes, they had stone, but they had no gold. Of course, they had wood, 
but they had no silver. Indeed, they had people willing to labor, but they had no treasure, no jewels. For them, all they had were memories. That and a pile of rubble. You see, from their vantage point, the people perceived that the temple they were trying to rebuild couldn't possibly measure up to the God who was meant to dwell there. After all, they probably thought the temple had to visually represent heaven on earth, the dwelling place of God. It had to be the most extravagant building of all because it was the most important building of all. And there was no way, no way that mere stones could represent heaven on earth. The temple was supposed to be a public statement, a message to the other nations. The greater the grandeur and wealth of the temple, the greater the power and majesty of their God. For the temple to be understood as the house of God, heaven on earth, it had to look like what the kind of house that God would live in. It had to look like heaven on earth. But from their perception, their reality was that they were starting something that it would be impossible to finish. There was no way they could restore the temple to its former glory. It would be nothing in comparison to King Solomon's temple. For them, the memory of the glory and majesty of what once was eclipsed the possibility of what could be. And as you probably gathered, as you read between the lines, apparently it didn't take long for the popular opinion of the older generation to start influencing the viewpoint of the young. Funny how that happens. The sudden loss of hope became contagious. We can imagine perhaps how things might have snowballed. I mean, if the wisdom of experience, people who have lived their lives, if the wisdom of experience, if the older generation is saying it'll never be good as it once was. The best days are behind us. Things can't get any better. And if you're younger, eventually you start asking yourself, well, what's the point? You begin thinking, why are we wasting our time for something we might not even finish? Why are we wasting our time for something who knows if any of us will be around to even see? Beloved, when people lose hope, they lose vision. I mean, nobody wants the labor of their life to be in vain. No one desires to exercise in futility. And so, after only a month, after the project they had started together had begun, it completely stops. Discouragement overwhelmed the drive of the people. It'll never be like it once was, so why bother? The perception of a bleak and uncertain future made fear the collective and shared reality of the people. The perception of a bleak and uncertain future made fear the collective reality, the shared reality of the people. Can any of us relate to this this morning? Is this perhaps where you are, where you're situated, where your life is at this moment, your perception of things? Is this your reality right now? 
I'm saying this to all of us, you're getting older. There's no two ways around it. Is getting older a good thing or a bad thing? Do you find yourself pining away for your youth, reminiscing about your glory days when you felt accomplished and successful? Does aging for you the reality of it, looking in the mirror, perhaps the slowness of your step, the fact that somehow the type just seemed to get smaller in your Bible? Does aging make you feel useless? Does aging make you feel like you've been put out to pasture? Does the fact that you are getting older make you more and more feel irrelevant? The best days are behind me. It's not going to get any better. So why bother? Maybe this morning your marriage is a struggle. Maybe this morning your relationship with your kids is estranged. There's this distance. And it just seems to get wider and wider. There's this lack of any commonality. In the midst of your marriage, in the midst of your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your family, are you telling yourself, do you find that all you keep coming back to is things used to be so much better than they are now? Things used to be so much better than they are now, better yesterday. Do you find yourself starting to believe that they'll never be that good again? Do you... Do you, do, you, do you feel yourself trapped and, and, and you can't think of any of the reasons why it could possibly work, but you can come up with lists of all the reasons why it won't work anymore? It'll never be as good as it once was. We'll never have what we had before. We'll never feel as close as we used to. So why bother? Why bother? Or perhaps this morning you're feeling crushed under the burden of debt. A burden that feels, it seems like it's getting heavier. Is red the only color that you can see in the ledger of your life? Is the only relief that you can perceive on the horizon in the midst of that debt? Financial, emotional, relational debt, whatever that debt is in your life, is the only relief that you can perceive on the horizon? Loss. Just finally losing everything, going bankrupt. It's never, never going to have what I had before. I'm never going to be in the black. My life's always going to be in the red. Why bother? Why even pick up the phone? Why even open my mail? Why even try? Are you sitting here this morning, and so many of us are, and you've lost your job recently? Or you find yourself in a job where you're struggling to stay employed? More and more do you find that you, you feel like just for the sake of a job, you're selling yourself. You feel almost like a prostitute. Like there's no limit to what you'll do just so you can have a job because you need one. You need to hold on to one. You need to get one so badly. And do you find that in the midst of the work that predominates all of our time, because that's pretty much where we spend most of our time at work in our jobs, do you find that it's a place that's not building your confidence, it's sapping your confidence? Do you find that, do you believe, is your perception that you're shredding? 
any possibility of contentment just so you can bring home a paycheck. I used to love what I do. I used to feel accomplished, but it's just a job. It's just a career. And I'll just keep doing it until they let me go. I'm just going to stay under their radar so they don't even notice. How about our church? Do we look around at our church? And what do we see? Do we look around at our church and do we see a community in decline? Or do we see a community in transition? Do you walk around this campus? Do you walk around this community? And do you find yourself seeing nothing but loss? Everything is a memory of what used to be good about this church. Everything is a reminder of how much better it was in the past. Do you feel like when you come to church on Sunday, and maybe that's why you don't come as often as you used to, that when you come on Sunday, you're more depressed about who's not here, so much so that you fail to notice who is? It'll never be the way that it used to be. It's not going to get any better. So why bother? And lastly, what's our impression of our nation? What's our impression of our nation these days? We just celebrated the 4th of July. And other than the fireworks and a bit of nostalgia, are you like me in, this, in finding that our pride in our country is more and more overshadowed by our pessimism? My God. You'd think that the American Revolution was a party and not a struggle. You'd think that the Civil War were good times. Because it just is never going to be as good as it once was. Our country's in the toilet. I mean, does anyone actually believe that our voice, let alone our vote, matters anymore? We're coming up on an election season and we're not electrified as a nation. Many of us are pretty much like, why bother? Why, why bother? What, why, why even show up? What difference is it going to make? It's never, we're never going to be what we once were. What do we need? What do we do when fear has overtaken our lives? Where do we find our hope? Haggai's answer for the people then and for us as a people now is an answer that simply echoes all of Scripture. Our hope, beloved, our hope in the midst of fear, our hope in the midst of discouragement can only be found in one place, in the Lord. Not once, but twice, through Haggai, the Lord says, I am with you. Our lives begin and end in understanding that reality, that God is with us. I am with you. And many of us know it. We know that God is with us. We can say it. But what Haggai is imparting to the people, imparting to us, is it's not enough to know it. We have to live it. We have to live that reality that God is with us. I am with you. God is with us is meant to be more than just a platitude, more than just something we say. In other words, God, when he says, I am with you, isn't just giving us his perception. Well, from my vantage point, I'm here all the time. God isn't giving us his perception God is telling us that he's our reality. The idea that God is with us is not a matter of perception, the Lord says. It's a fact. 
In other words, and this is where fear and discouragement have their greatest power, why the Lord starts with, I am with you. In other words, God says, I am with you, so we understand it's not about me. It's not about you. The people look at the temple. The people look and say, it'll never be as good as it once was. Those were the best times. Those were the best materials, the best resources. It'll never be that good. And the Lord, in saying, I am with you, is trying to help them to understand that that past, that temple, and for us in our lives, that moment that we just reminisce about, that moment that we hold up as the golden age, the golden moment, the Lord is saying, as we hold up that temple in our lives, that moment that can never get any better, as we hold it up almost to the point of worship, the Lord is saying, who authored that moment? Who built that temple? Who made that happen? Later on, he will say, I control the gold. I control the silver. You look around and say, we have no gold. We have no silver. Who makes it? Me. God is saying, I am with you so that we understand that the temple, our lives, Everything is not a work of our human hands. Every moment of our lives is a gift from God. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Moonstruck, but I, I, in this moment, I think there's a moment in that movie, if you've never seen it, where someone is struggling with fear and discouragement, and Cher, who's in that movie, basically slaps them across the face and says, snap out of it. God's I am with you is really a slap. Snap out of it. It's not about you, it's about me, and I am with you. And Haggai builds on this foundational understanding, this paradigm shift to not focus on ourselves, but to focus on this God who is with us by giving an immediate solution to the problems of the people. In the midst of their fear and discouragement, the Lord says repeatedly, be strong. And if we don't understand what be strong means, he throws in another word the first time around to make it clear. Be strong is God's way of saying, get back to work. Get back to work. How do we realize that it's not about us? How do we get to that place where we think it is? How do we get stuck? How do we stop? Because when we fixate on ourselves, when we get obsessed with navel-gazing, we stop. And God says, the only way you're going to get out of this perception, the only way you're going to get past this feeling is you've got to work it out. Get back to work. Because this God understands, this God continually tries to teach us as a people that there is strength, there is hope in the rhythm. The rhythm, yet for us it often feels like a grind, the rhythm of submission and obedience, of continuing to open up our lives and dedicate our lives to this God. That's how we don't just say God is with us, but we practice, we live the reality that God is with us. And speaking of practice, that's a great analogy for us. Some, all of us at some point in our life have done something that required practice. And yet, many of us don't like to practice. Whether it's sports, an instrument, whatever it is, cooking, whatever it is, many of us don't like to practice. We, we want to have it just naturally, instantly come to us. We're waiting for that technology, right, when they're just going to put a chip in and you'll just know how to do it. And you'll do it brilliantly. But if you've learned in your life anything about these things that we're able to do, that God enables us to do, practice is key. And you round that corner when you understand this, that practice is not about motivation. How many of us have said to our mom, maybe it was piano lessons, I don't want to practice. I don't feel like practicing. Practicing's boring. 
Practice is not primarily about motivation. Practice is about momentum. John Wooden, one of the greatest coaches, I will argue, who ever lived, told his players repeatedly that the game was not won during the game. The game was won in practice. And he said, I never coached during a game. I did all my coaching during practice. It was practice, the momentum of practice, that continual submission, that obedience, that finding that rhythm, that when the moment comes, when the time is, is right, we are able to engage. Practice is what wins games. We have an expression, and I want to honor it. <laughs> Go through the motions is what God is saying. Go through the motions. Now, for many of us, we think that's a bad thing. Going through the motions is a bad thing. No, you know what's a bad thing? is when we just go through the motions. God says, go through the motions. That's why, through the history of the church, and many of you, this is why it's so meaningful to you, and I understand that as your pastor, we have a liturgy, and liturgy means the work of the people. We may do things differently, but there's a rhythm. There's a, a, a centerpiece to how we worship together. And the reason why it's never changed is because it works. It works when we're not feeling like it. It works when we're tired. It works when we're not in the best mood. We don't just come to worship and say, well, I don't feel like it today. We worship because that's what God calls us to do. And sometimes the most powerful worship experiences for me the most powerful encounters I've had with God have been when I didn't want to worship, when I wasn't in that place to worship, when I didn't feel like it. Beloved, another way to think of this idea of be strong, get back to work, to tie it back to last week, is answering God's call in our life is not about what we see. Answering God's call in our life is not about our measure of success, and we always gravitate back to it. We want to have all the answers, like I told you last week. But answering God's call in our lives is about the questions. It's about the relationship. It's about continuing to move, to continue to press into this God. And so God is saying to a people who have become overwhelmed by fear and discouragement, work it out. Get back to work. You're not going to get past this unless you live into the reality that I am with you. That's the immediate solution. Work it out. And it's an immediate solution for us. Work it out. Don't stand still. Keep moving. Keep practicing. Keep opening your life. Keep submitting to me. Work it out. But the long-term solution that Haggai gives is also important for us. Do not fear, the Lord says. Do not fear, the Lord says, which is the Lord's way of saying, trust me. Do not fear. And that's the Lord's way of saying, long-term, trust me. As a parent, I remember early on with both of my kids, with Emma and with Ethan, when they began to have fears. Do you remember when you or maybe your kids, if you had kids, had fears? And what's the default thing that we say as parents when your kid says they're afraid of the dark? Don't be afraid. And you never notice how useless that is for a little kid? Oh, don't be afraid. Okay, okay. What we mean as parents, what I meant to my daughter and what I meant later to my son in the midst of their fears when I said, don't be afraid, what I was trying to say to them is replace that fear that you have with your trust in me. Replace that fear that you have with your trust in me. 
And that's what God is saying when he says to the people, long-term, as you're looking long-term, don't be afraid. Trust me. And this God isn't asking us to have a blind trust. God is saying, work it out, but rest, not on your fears. Work it out, but rest in those holidays, in those Sabbath moments. Rest not on your fears, on your worries, what if, what might happen, but rest instead on my promises, on my covenant. That's why God says, I covenanted with you. Rest not on your fears, your worries, but rest on my promises. And God specifically points to the most significant promise fulfilled that they have. Remember Egypt, God says. Remember Egypt. Because, beloved, this call by God not to fear, not to be afraid, to trust him is grounded in our past. In case you misunderstood me earlier, there's nothing wrong with looking back. God never says, don't look back. There's nothing wrong with looking back and remembering our past. Quite the opposite. God says it's crucial that we don't forget our past. That trust that overcomes our fear comes from remembering our past. God has no problem invoking the Israelite story. We are called to look back and remember our past. The key, beloved, is not to stay there. The key is not to live in the past. It's subtle, but it's significant. By all means, don't forget where you've come from. But by all means, don't live there. Don't stay there. And for a lot of us, we are living in our past. And the easiest way to live in the past, why it becomes so comfortable, and God (laughs) has no problem pulling punches later, is it's easy to live in the past when we idealize our past rather than are realistic about our past. You know, probably one of the most beneficial conversations it's, was so helpful to me as your pastor was having the honor and the privilege of talking to Joyce Johnson in Paul's, Pastor Paul's final days. Because getting to talk with the Johnson family, at one point it just came up, and, and, and you know, I don't, I don't want to give a, a slanted perspective, but it's, it's been, a, it's been a, a, a rough couple of years, hasn't it, for us? At least, well, for me, and, and there's a point in which you start to think, maybe it's me. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just a troublemaker. Maybe I'm causing problems. And at some point it came up, and I remember the look on Joyce's face. You think Paul didn't have any problems? You think everybody agreed with what he said? And I'm like, yeah, because everybody I talk to, that's what they throw back in my face. Oh, when Paul was the pastor, it was wonderful. Everything he touched turned to gold. We loved everything he did. I got another perspective. I had idealized the past, and maybe perhaps some of us idealize our past. And when we do that, that makes it easy, comfortable to live there. But when we're realistic about our past, and that's what God wants. God wants us to be realistic about our past. Egypt, what God did in Egypt was phenomenal, but does anyone really want to go back to Egypt? King Solomon, those days were great. Do you remember how that ended up? The key is, and this is, what the, this is so important, and we're gonna, we miss this, is we tend to emphasize and make the days, the moments, the glory days. And God is saying, don't mistake the day or the moment as being the, the source of the glory. I am the source of your glory. The glory belongs to me, not to those isolated moments that you lift up and worship. In other words, beloved, history isn't about the snapshots. We idealize our history when we only remember the high points. And we forget all the stuff in between. 
It's about all the stuff in between that God is saying. Trust me, and trust me by not just remembering the high points, but remember all the stuff in between. Because that stuff in between is where it's most important that you understand and remember, I was faithful. When you forgot me, when you abandoned me, when you went another way, I was faithful. Beloved, our past with God is supposed to push us into our future in God. That is what Haggai is saying. Don't fear. Trust me. Remember your past so that you are pushed into this future with me. Another way to think of it is trust is about anticipation. When you trust somebody, when you trust the Lord, when we trust the Lord, we anticipate that relationship with the Lord. Trust is evident in our lives when anticipation is our orientation rather than dread or worry. And that's why the Lord tries to kindle that within the people. He doesn't just tell them not to be afraid. He tries to kindle their trust, their sense of anticipation, when he says something that ought to blow your mind if you put yourself in the mindset of the people who heard it. God says to these people who saw the, the incredible beauty of the temple under Solomon, who saw the nation at its highest point ever, God says through Haggai, the glory of the present house that you're building now is going to be greater than the glory of the former house. In other words, and God says this again and again in his word and in our lives, again and again God says to us that the reality with this God is that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Do we believe this? Do we believe this? Because God says it over and over again, you ain't seen nothing yet. The best is yet to come. Do we live this way? Do we live with a sense of anticipation that with this God, the best is yet to come? Because, beloved, if you've never figured it out, we worship a God of surprises. We worship a God of surprises. That's probably one of the most significant ways of defining the character of this God. This is a God who is always surprising us. Through another prophet, Isaiah, who put it this straight and simple. My ways are not your ways. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. We worship a God who in his very character surprises us again and again. A God who created this universe. A God who created our lives out of nothing. When's the last time you created something out of nothing? This God creates out of nothing. This is a God who takes what we deem as impossible. He lives for it. This God lives for that moment when we say, not possible. And he says, oh, it's possible. Talk to Sarah. How old was Sarah again? How long had she been barren? How much had she received ridicule and scorn? And when God said to Abraham, oh no, you are going to have a child. Oh, and it's not just any child. Your child's going to be the start of a new nation. Sarah laughed. She laughed because that's impossible. And that laughter came back around when that's the name she gave to her son. When holding in her arms, the laughter that came out of what was impossible became the name of her child that was not just possible, but existed, was being held in her hands. We worship a God who takes the unimagined in our lives and makes it the reality of our lives. Another way to think about this so we can change our vocabulary because our words matter, we often like to talk about that God fulfills our expectations, that God will meet our every need. Yes, he will, but let's push it even further. If you really know this God, this God, doesn't just, this God isn't about fulfilling our expectations. This God has no interest in fulfilling your expectations or mine. 
This God is about transforming our expectations. Transforming our expectations. And the most powerful example, which we have the ability to see on the other side of this story, that's right here for us as God speaks about this house, this temple, that will be greater in its glory than the former house. Here's an example of God doing the unexpected. Here is God doing the impossible. Here is God doing a surprise. Because what he's referring to, we know where, how this story ends. We know what he's referring to. The temple will be rebuilt. But what God's talking about when he says the glory of this house will be greater than my former house, it's not about the building that gets rebuilt, is it? The future fulfillment that was totally unexpected by the people, that was totally unimagined, was Jesus Christ. Jesus as the temple. Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. I'm not going to live in a building. I'm going to come among you in the flesh. No one imagined that. No one thought that was possible. No one could have perceived that reality. But it gets even better. If that doesn't blow our minds enough, surprise us, unexpected, unimagined enough, we know where it goes even further than that. And that's what makes it so challenging for us, is the ultimate fulfillment of what God says through Haggai to the people generations ago, centuries ago, the ultimate fulfillment that's even more surprising and seemingly impossible is the temple that he's talking about that's going to be greater than the formal temple is us. You and me. We are, as Paul writes, the temple of the Lord. We are the body of Christ. Hold up. We no longer build with stones, Paul will write. We build lives. We no longer build a physical temple, that, but we build God's community. It's no longer about the amount of gold or silver that reflect God's glory and power. It's our lives that reflect God's glory and power. Instead of stones that witness and testify to the Almighty God to the world, it is our life together that is a witness and testimony to God. No longer does a mere building represent heaven on earth, but rather heaven on earth is seen in his people in their unity, in their love of God and of each other and others, in their peace and their forgiveness in their holy lives. That is what it means to build God's community, to be the temple of the Lord. This is impossible. This is, this is impossible. This is why people have such a hard time with the church, pastors included. Forget looking at you. If I look at myself, if I look at my life of mistakes, if I look at my imperfections, if I look at my selfishness, if I look at my sinfulness, how in God's green earth is my life supposed to represent the almighty God? The people back then said, if we don't have gold and silver and jewels and treasure, how can this look like heaven on earth? That looks easy compared to my life reflecting heaven on earth, the glory of God. How can my mere words, how can my deeds, whatever I do, help to build God's community here on earth? It's easy to be afraid. It's easy to be discouraged. But God says, I am with you. Beloved, we don't build. We are being built. God says, be strong, get to work, be the stones, trust in the foundation, trust the architect. Our perception, beloved, isn't reality because our perception is limited. We live not by perception, we live by revelation. 
And what has been revealed to us? The last few verses of this part of chapter 2 are powerful and they are epically confusing. Haggai verses two, chapter 2 verses 6 through 9 are not the easiest verses to interpret. But thankfully, the words that God has here, and one day I will shake the foundations of everything again, are actually interpreted for us later on in the New Testament. These words of Haggai are quoted in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 12. And there, the writer of that letter tells us what God is saying. He writes, the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, he writes, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now there's a lot there. And whatever precisely that interpretation from Hebrew means... One simple point stands out, and it's what we need to hear this morning. We, as the children of the living God, are receiving, are being built into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That cannot be shaken. So, beloved, I ask you this morning, are you listening to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet Haggai or are this morning you still listening to your fears? If discouragement is a word that describes your life right now, if fear is your perception and your reality, hear the word of the Lord through the prophet Haggai. Trust the foundation that the Lord is with you. Trust the architect. Our hope is that our perception is not reality. God continues to reveal that he is with us and that we can trust him. What he is building in and through us will come to completion and it will surprise us. It will exceed our expectations and it will not be shaken. May that be an encouragement to us all this morning. Amen.